0: This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast, where we'll thread together stories from our collections with the experiences of people in Liverpool today, exploring connections between the past and the present. Today we are talking about scandal. What constitutes a scandal? Salacious secrets, moral ambiguity, or simply breaking the cultural norm? The word can cover all these things and more. I'm Ellie Field, and this week we'll find out why the destruction of a portrait of Lord Leverhume caused an international scandal, explore what makes a book scandalous, and delve into the scandal surrounding Liverpool losing its world heritage status. First up is Natalie McCool, who is speaking to curator Alex Patterson about the scandalous destruction of a portrait of Lord Leverhume, sparking a debate over who truly owns art. Who owns
1: art? In 1920, Lord Leverhulme, the prominent art collector and soap millionaire, caused outrage and made headlines in the tabloids when he destroyed his own portrait by the leading celebrity portraitist, Augustus John. I'm Natalie McCool and I was joined by Alex Patterson from National Museums Liverpool where this infamous portrait is currently on display. Now, being the host of a music industry podcast and being an artist myself, I find it so fascinating to talk about these issues of artistic ownership and artistic control and who actually owns art. So we have two very different characters at the centre of this scandal and we spoke about who they were and how this whole situation came about
2: at the time john uh, augustus john had just returned from the paris peace conference so he was britain's most famous artist he was the leading artist he was rubbing shoulders with really uh, important people and lord lever hume was an avid art collector And he was really eager to get his portrait painted by Mm -hmm. someone like Augustus John. And so he commissioned a portrait, he went down to the studio in London, they did a few sittings, and the portrait was delivered to Lord Leverhulme at um, his bungalow in Rivington near Bolton. Unfortunately, Lord Leverhulme absolutely hated the portrait, (laughs) um, which I think we can all identify with a little bit. And so what he did, he was going to hide it in his safe so that nobody could ever see it. Unfortunately, it wouldn't fit. So what he did is he cut out the head and hit that in the safe instead. And it would have all been fine if his housekeeper hadn't realised that that that's what he had done. And what she did is pack up the rest of the portrait, the frame and the rest of the canvas, put it in the packing crate and sent it back to John. And you can imagine John was absolutely outraged and he saw it as like a personal attack on his art. Um, And subsequently, all of the correspondence that went between Lever and John sort of blew up in the tabloids and it just became sort of like national sort of scandal, if
1: you like. So we just spoke about how this situation came about and who were the figures at the centre of this story. And it was actually a big scandal of the moment. It was headline material. It actually became part of the fabric of the pop culture of that time. And we spoke about why it caused so much outrage and divisiveness.
2: So I think everyone was sort of outraged. Uh, I think it was actually mostly the art community that was outraged. I mean, it it Mm. sort of provoked people like John Lavery and Jacob Epstein to sort of publish their own thoughts in the paper as well. So it really, really riled up the art community most. And Mm. also the people who sort of really admired John and knew him in the London art scene. Uh, He was really admired for his talent, but also his bohemian lifestyle. So he was sort of, he was the man at the time. And they were so angry that I think even the, you can tell by the language they kind of used it was this kind of decapitated beheaded executed you know it's it's almost like it was a it was a personal attack on john if you like it was quite weird and i suppose mainly because they were upset because the reputation of an artist it lies in the hands of the people who come to own their art and there's a kind of trust between those two people they're both art lovers and they have like a mutual trust and bond um and it's sort of unwritten. So when someone destroys someone's work or changes it or alters it in any kind of way, it's it's kind of a personal attack on them. And yeah, so it, you know, if you think about it in a kind of in a way of other art forms as well. So if someone had a piece of writing or a piece of music and they someone commissioned that work but then changed it, it would really, really alter the way the the artist's reputation and legacy will be seen in the future. so it's it, it's actually quite, important um yeah so that's i think that's why artists in particular were particularly annoyed <laughs> so we just spoke
1: about how many people were outraged by the scandal and this was particularly provoking because of the way Leverhume's firm sunlight soap used original artworks for their advertisements so already we see lord lever as someone who is not respectful of creative ownership Could there be a sense of entitlement there? Was the disagreement a question of contrasting personality types? Billionaire businessman versus bohemian artist? Was it actually a battle of beliefs and core values?
2: Yeah, it it was mostly... So Augustus John was famous for coming out of the Slade School uh, in London, and yeah, it was mostly the art students who all came together. There was about 600 of them, and they all protested um, and walked and marched down Gower Street to Hyde Park and they burnt all these effigies. Um, And it was done on November the 5th, so bonfire night, and it (laughs) it was all quite fitting at the time. Um, And yeah, it was a personal attack, I think, on Lord Leverhulme. You have this kind of billionaire uh, businessman, you know, sort of versus the poor bohemian artist, and Leverhulme was never going to come out well on that. (laughs)
1: So we just spoke about the differences between these two figures at the centre of this story. And Augustus John was actually commissioned to paint this portrait of Lord Leverhulme. And quite often we see creatives feeling torn between the transactional nature of someone commissioning a piece of art versus their pure creative expression. And this continues to be a bit of a grey area, not just for Lord Leverhulme and Augustus John, but for everyone else who seemed to have an opinion on it.
2: I think that's always the problem with portraits um, in general, really. it's There are so many compositional and technical elements to portraiture and those kind of elements create how we see and respond to the sitter uh, personally. So that's it's quite an important part of portrait painting. And if the sitter is paying for the portrait, they usually want it to make them look good um, mm. and at the same time be a realistic example of them as well. Um, but sometimes it's hard to come to terms with those kind of realities. And it's the artist's job to try and balance the different parties involved. So trying to keep the sitter happy so they will make so that they will like their portrait, um, but also being true to their own creativeness. So it's it's a really difficult balance to get, and I think it's one that each artist sort of approaches differently. Lieber certainly believed that once he had paid for an artwork that he owned that artwork and he could do whatever he wanted with that artwork. I'm not really... I I don't think they had a personal hatred towards each other. Uh, I think they had very different values, like you say. Augustus John was um, was a huge character uh, in Liverpool. He spent much of his life in Liverpool and Lord Leverhulme was a great supporter of arts in the city. So the two would have... I think, would have been involved in the same circles. They sort of would have known the same people. I think the thing that strikes me the most is that Lord Leverhulme's main uh, reason for setting up the Lady Lever Art Gallery in Port Sunlight was that he believed art was for everyone, However, in this case, it being a portrait of himself that he didn't like, he sort of strode away from his own values, if you like, and he yeah. sort of was trying to hide that and make sure it wasn't for everyone. So it's it's a really, I think he was battling with his own values at the same time. And yeah, he was, you know, it, it, it's, it must have hurt his feelings. He was, he was a 70-year-old man and he was, you know, a, a little bit overweight perhaps. Uh, and Augustus John was renowned for these, uh, you know, really truth to like portraits that could often be quite ugly in in themselves and Lever kind of knew that so he 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 walked into it I think. (laughs) And we just spoke about just how many people were outraged
1: at this scandal and you could say that Lord Leverhulme knew exactly what he was getting he knew Augustus John he knew his style and the unapologetic way he painted his subjects So you could say he knew exactly what he was letting himself in for. Does this lead into a weird compulsion we all have to want to see the ugly parts of ourselves and when we do see them, it makes us uncomfortable? I remember going to an art exhibition where there was a true mirror on display and as I looked into it and saw the way my face truly looks to other people, I was horrified, <laughs> so I can understand Lord Leverhulme's concerns and the reaction he had. And next we spoke about how this continues to be a point of contention today.
2: Lord Leverhulme, he was an Avidar collector. He wanted to have his portrait painted by the leading person at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think he, I think most people would want to appreciate that work and the artist's talent and creativity. However, when you're confronted with something that uh, you think is awful and shows what you consider to be the worst parts of you, then it's a, it's, a, it's very different, isn't it? And it it makes us all, it, I suppose it would make us all feel very insecure, perhaps not even just in the presence of the portrait, but actually in, in life, you know, in, in the way you live your life and things like that. And I think, yeah, I think it's a really difficult thing to confront, actually, that maybe that is how other people see us because I think it's very different we see ourselves very differently than other people so yeah uh, yeah Yeah. really it it does talk to that personal side and finally I asked Alex what she
1: thinks who owns art was Lord Leverhulme right to destroy a painting that he thought he owned no.
2: <laughs> and the short answer is no. As a curator, there is there's no way that I would ever say that uh, an artwork could be uh, changed or altered in any way. Um, although you know, you, there's always that little bit inside you, isn't there, that sort of understands leave upset. Uh, and I, I kind of always wonder what I would do. <laughs> and if I ever had a very, very bad picture of me, would, I mean, would I put it on a wall or would I hide it away? Um, yeah, but hiding it is very different than right. destroying it. So it yeah. Means, yeah, Yeah. So yeah, I would not condone his actions. <laughs> Perhaps making these kind of, like, like you say, commotion um, about these things, it, it kind of just draws more attention to it and we can just love a piece of art for it being a piece of art and we'll continue to to view it that way.
0: Art has always been surrounded by scandal. From artworks being stolen, to artists pushing the boundaries as to what constitutes art. For example, a banana taped to a wall. But literature can be equally as scandalous so much so that some books have even been banned from entering the country. Here's Cat Plum speaking to the curator Steve Butler about Lady Chatterley's Lover, the salacious 1920s novel that was banned in the UK until the 1960s. That will be
3: have you ever gone through airport security and suddenly felt a little odd? that a stranger on the security desk is going to be viewing an x-ray of all of your belongings. You might feel sheepish about someone seeing the dirty laundry stuffed hastily into your rucksack, or you might be embarrassed that someone might catch a glimpse of something far more erotic in your luggage. The things we carry around with us are so personal and can say a lot about our social standing. A cursory look through YouTube's tagged sensation, what's in my bag, will evidence this. Hi, I'm Kat Plum. I am a multidisciplinary artist based in Liverpool. I identify as queer and non-binary. Mainly, my work addresses themes of death, comedy and eroticism, and how the body navigates through these. I sat down with Steve Butler, a curator of the Border Force Collections at the National Museum's Liverpool. We met to discuss themes of taboo, sexuality and changing social norms through The Prism of Lady Chatterley's Lover, a scandalous novel by D. H. Lawrence. Written in the late 1920s and immediately banned in the UK, copies circulated secretly, sold on the black market and smuggled into the country in their thousands. A custom seizure book from the port of Dover showed 126 copies of the book were confiscated and subsequently burnt between 1930 and 1934. As an artist exploring the moral compasses of sexuality, whether that be current or past, I was interested in the taboos that surrounded the publication and seizures of Lady Chatterley's lover. I asked Steve why Lady Chatterley's lover was considered obscene.
4: At the time, it was deemed indecent because it was a, it, it focused on a relationship between two married people. One was a Lady Chatterley, an aristocratic, upper-class lady, and her gamekeeper who was then deemed to be working class and also married. Society at the time deemed that to be an appropriate sort of a relationship between two different, distinctly different classes, as they were then deemed. And it was also a a revelation of detailed sexual activity between the two, which at the time was also quite explicit. It was a passionate affair between the two and, and, and described as such in some detail. So because of the explicit descriptions of sex and four-letter words that were used within the publication, plus the fact that there was, there was reference to anal sex, which again was deemed illegal at the time, the book was considered to be indecent.
3: The obscenity of Lady Chatterley's lover being concerned with an affair between two married people stood in diametric opposition to the ruling morality of the time which had mainly been dictated by institutions in power and the church. But the didactics of those in power didn't necessarily reflect the views of the society at large. In trying to speak for the nation, lawmakers instead made legislation of their own biases. But who had to police these morals? A lot of the time, the moral policing ended up being the responsibility of customs officers, or border force security. These were not necessarily people who wanted to decide what was right or wrong, good or bad but merely folks who needed a job. Steve unpacked a little more about the tension and the obligation to exercise the law.
4: Going back to 1930s society and what uh, knowledge we may have of it, and there's a certain contradiction, really. So it was. It, let's be honest, it was the aristocrats who were making the laws very often. You know, who was in government at that point? And they were deeming, effectively, they were drawing up laws t- to to ensure society was protected from literature of of this type. But that the very people who were making the laws, that's not much different to today, in truth is it, but the very people making the laws were breaking them all the time themselves. (laughs) You know, the type of relationships that they were having, the extramarital affairs that the politicians were engaging in at the time, which subsequently came out, you know, when we were well-publicized. but. In effect, it was one law for them and and, and one law for the rest of us. And and it still is today, isn't it? Very much so, as we've seen in recent, very recent times. So I think this is a hypocrisy, too, about the the way that the moral standards of behavior, if you like, were being, being overseen and policed. And, and the customs in that regard, the customs officer was at the end of this line, wasn't they? I suspect some would quite like to have read D.H. Lawrence. I suspect I'd put money on some of the property. did before the books were burnt. But the re- re- reality was, <clears throat> they weren't necessarily making any personal judgments. They were instructed by their bosses, who were instructed by government. To say, say, right, these are the books you'll need to look out for. These are the type of publications we don't want to, uh, passengers to, to, to be seen with. I think it does reflect the hypocrisy of, of class. And class then was so important too, wasn't it? And that's why D.H. Lawrence captured that. I always think it's interesting to see though the lawmakers and how those laws are interpreted. And then who, who has to carry out um, the function of the law. Any it's obviously the customs officer or the police officer or whatever that has to carry out those laws and has to be seen to be fair in, in how they might do that.
3: These days, you can easily walk into any bookstore and buy a copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover for yourself. Since the 1930s, what is considered decent and indecent has been constantly shifting. Steve told me a little more about the court case that reprieved and legalised D.H. Lawrence's novel.
4: The seizure book was from the 1930s, um, and it wasn't until 1960, so 30 years later, that it actually comes to court, takes a notorious uh, trial for obscenity laws to be looked at in in much closer detail in 1960. What came to court was Lady Chatterley's Lover, Penguin Books, and and it's one of its founders, Alan Lane decided to, to give copies of the book they wanted to publish, which is Lady Chapley's Lover, to the police, with the intention that the police would then take them to court to have a trial to really try and prove that the book wasn't indecent, was in fact of value, of literary value, and therefore was perfectly accepted to be published. I've seen images of hundreds and literally hundreds of people crowding outside the Old Bailey trying to get into the public gallery to witness this really highly publicized case. It was the first time that this new Lord Obscene's Publication Act of 1959 was enacted. And this new Obscene Publication Act, it was a defense for publishers to produce works or to publish works which were considered to be of literary merit, and so this whole highly publicised trial that takes place in 1960 um, was to try prove D. H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover was of literary merit, and so there was a jury, and they were given five days to read Lady Chapley's lover, So they knew all what the book was about, and they knew what the case was about. But they weren't allowed to take the book home because that would have been illegal at that time. So they had to read the book in court time. So effectively, the case was adjourned for a few days to give the jurors time to read the book. Ultimately, on, I think it was the 5th of November, 1960, the case against Penguin Books Limited was proven in their favor. So it was decided the book had literary merit and therefore could be published. It was a landmark case. It's 1960s Britain, and there's a far more relaxed attitude.
3: If it hadn't have been a company with enough pre-existing wealth and capital to go to court, we may have found that these norms might never have changed. Disruption had to come from the ones who already held privilege and who stood to financially benefit from the laws changing. Penguin, after all, sold its first print run of 200,000 copies on the first day of legal publication. This made me think about how funny it is that monetary value intersects so strangely with cultural value. Steve told me about how the annotated book that was used in the trial became an art object in itself.
4: The judge obviously had his own copy of the book. I think think his name was Bryn, which he annotated... And it was annotated also by his wife, who uh, wanted to ensure that he had easy access to sections of the book which were deemed to be, uh, shall we say, what, risque or or, possibly obscene or whatever. So the book was annotated in close detail by his wife as well. Um, and the Brin family ultimately sold the book. comes up for auction in 2018, the book itself. And it comes up for sale and is, is sold for over £56,000. And then the arts minister, the then arts minister, places a temporary ban preventing its export. So important is this book considered. And there's a crowdfunding takes place and, and various fundraising activity and eventually, The book is acquired by the University of Bristol in in 2019 as a part of their permanent collection. You know, it gives you some idea just how important this trial case was and, and how important it was for payment books to win the case, which they did.
3: There's something pleasantly circular about the fact that a book that was once banned from entering the country when it was deemed immoral was now an object that was banned from leaving the country as it was deemed too valuable. Lady Chatterley's lover is a little microcosm, a little prism through which to view the changing expectations and scandals of society.
0: As we heard in that story, scandal can be hypocritical. Opinion can change from one moment to the next as to whether or not something is scandalous. And in today's world of cancel culture, this flippant attitude can make the world a complex place to navigate morally, in this last story, I'll be talking to three people about the legacy of Liverpool losing its heritage status, a topic that has caused a lot of debate in the city. Back in July 2021, Liverpool was stripped of its World Heritage status, a scandal that was heavily discussed by locals and the national press. The decision was made in a secret ballot by the UNESCO committee at a meeting in China. 20 votes were been cast, with 13 in favour of deleting the city, five against the proposal, and two ballot papers were spoiled. The decision has been met with mixed emotions in Liverpool, with some outraged and others completely unbothered. I spoke to Robin Brown, journalist at the Liverpool Post, who has been writing about Liverpool for 25 years, about what he thought of the decision and what benefits we could lose without the heritage status.
5: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I, I, I can see fault on both sides and I, I can understand the perspectives from both sides as well. I think UNESCO has not covered itself in glory in in how it's uh, addressed this and how it's gone about it. It seemed to be quite brutal and a a little sort of dismissive, almost. The fact that they didn't come, it does kind of emphasize this sort of dislocation from the process a little bit. If if you're not going to come over the course of pretty much a decade, I think it was, uh, 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 and, and look at the site again, and make those assessments, it it, it does beg the question as to how can you realistically make a judgment along those lines. My sense is that both parties became entrenched in these positions and, and just became more and more stubborn it's like when you see people in a pub not backing down over an argument, and even though no one wants to have a fight, they end up having a fight outside because no one wants to say maybe we got this wrong a little bit and let's shake hands and have another drink. I don't think uh, I don't think either party has emerged with a lot of credit from this, um, to be quite honest. But my my sense is that UNESCO looked at the mood music here. And Joe Anderson was very dismissive over a long time, really, of um, UNESCO and the World Heritage status. And I almost sense that, in some ways, that there were quite a lot of parallels with Brexit to me. In that, you know, either side became more and more entrenched in the position, unwilling to give any more ground. This slightly kind of performative aspect of negotiating uh, through the media and essaying these broadsides at one another in the media, which was not helpful. So, yeah, uh, f- absolutely fault on both sides. No one wins from it whatsoever. Um, it- it's a shame. We-, we just have to hope that the consequences aren't going to be too negative. So I think what you can gain from heritage status is that in-, in a tangible sense, it's easier to attract funding for heritage. I think that's probably the most obvious potential loss that we're going to see now. Um, I think it's also a useful check on low quality development, exactly what that means is, is, is you know, a huge matter of debate. Um, and it's not clear necessarily what, what's good design, what's bad design. And that's a whole other podcast in itself, I guess. I think from my perspective, my personal feelings are, it, it'll be harder to find uh, funding for heritage um, now in the city. Um, it certainly won't be easier. And I think there's a question mark over what it means in terms of development now. Uh, I think under the Joe Anderson administration, it would have been develop, develop, develop. And um, that I think that administration saw development as, as a good thing uh, in and of itself. Um, it remains to be seen what the Joanne Anderson administration makes of it. There's been quite a break on development, I think, while uh, we see where some of the cards fall. <laughs> um, where we go now, I think, is going to be really interesting. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not really clear on what it means at the moment for Liverpool. Um, I, I go back to what I said before. I don't think it can be a positive thing. It's just a question of how, how negative that might turn out to be.
0: We later talked about the question journalists focused on the most in July 2021. Did Liverpool actually deserve to lose the heritage status?
5: I think we deserve to lose the status on the basis of what UNESCO has been saying for a long time. I don't think there was any option. Uh, I think UNESCO had sort of boxed itself in a little bit. I think that the city's leaders had boxed themselves in a little bit. And I think from Liverpool's perspective, to be fair, it, it was hard to see how they would just say, can we want... You know, invest huge amounts of money in trying to redevelop this area. From UNESCO's perspective, having said that's our hard red line, we were left with nowhere to go. Whether you think the decision was correct, I think there's a more nuanced question. I think it's important to say this is a complex uh, debate. It shouldn't be polarized, and it shouldn't be brought down to this false dichotomy of heritage or development. Uh, I find that an annoying. Uh, straw man, which just isn't really a, a proper argument in it at all. So on the terms that were explained and understood by the city council, I think it was inevitable that we would lose the status. Whether it was the right decision, I think, is um, maybe a debate <laughs> for all of other podcast.
0: Someone who's connected to the topic on many levels is Laura Pye, director of National Museums of Liverpool. Laura has worked in the culture and heritage sector for over 20 years and grew up in Liverpool. So here's what she had to say on the subject.
6: I certainly see the arguments about it being like two strong children and not being able to find a point of meat in the middle. On balance, I don't think I do believe that we deserve to lose it, but I do think that we have to take it to some degree. I think there was a lot of things we could have done better as a city to maintain the status. I think there's a lot of things that we should have done um, I think there was a lot of very poor development in the city. And I think that's that's fair. I had a conversation with someone where I was trying to defend the kinds of developments in the city. And I was saying there's been some great developments in the city. And someone said to me, name one in the last 10 years. And I couldn't. Every great development that I could think of in the city was more than 10 years ago. And so I do think there's been a challenge about quality in terms of development. Um, so I understand UNESCO's mm. view on that. But I think overall to to take a decision to remove it without having visited the city in 10 years, without really understanding where those developments were, and also without really engaging meaningfully for me in a conversation around what does this look like then if you've got heritage status but you're a living, breathing city? Because cities change and they develop and they don't stay. I think by the removal of the status in Liverpool, I think UNESCO actually have created themselves another problem because... Other places are going to have the same challenges and how are they going to deal with that?
0: Liverpudlians are known for being fiercely defensive of their city. So I asked Laura what she thought of the citywide reaction to losing the status.
6: Yeah, I mean, it definitely was something that was talked about. In fact, it was probably talked about more in the city when we lost the status than it was when we got the status, which maybe in itself is slightly part of the problem. I think... You know the people in Liverpool really dislike an injustice and it felt like an injustice and therefore it became a talking point. I think the point that not many people knew that we had the status or or were talking about it before probably says something about the long-term effect of losing the status in all honesty in that yeah no one liked the injustice and everyone had something to say about it and everyone had something to say about whether they were right or wrong and it allowed people's opinions of architectural developments in the city in the last 20 years to be discussed and all of those kind of things. But I think what the kind of conversations around losing the status did show is they showed that Liverpool is a city that values its heritage. That came out very strongly from our elected members, from our general public, from lots of other people who came out very strongly saying... The heritage of the city is important to us. And I think it proved that you know you can engage people in, in active conversations about how do you balance this really quite difficult issue around protecting the heritage of a city that's really, really important to who the city is and what and its identity, and ensure that it's still a living, breathing city that develops because cities develop over time. Um, and I think there was some really interesting debate. You know, one of UNESCO's main points was around the filling in of docks, which was detrimental to the heritage of the city. Well, the filling in of docks has been something that Liverpool's done as a city for over 100 years. We don't have the three graces if you don't fill in the docks. We don't have Liverpool One without the infill in of docks. Uh, we don't have the Museum of Liverpool without the infill in of docks. So it's something that I think it caused some really interesting conversations because, you know, you would argue that those things are iconically Liverpool now. So at what point is it all right to do that and at what point is it not? I think is a really, it was a really interesting debate. And I think the fact that it caused the debate was actually more beneficial than when we got the status in the first place to some degree.
0: Speaking to Michael Parkinson, honorary professor at the University of Liverpool and ambassador for its Heseltine Institute for Public Policy, Practice and Place. Whew, I don't want to say that three times. I got to understand the complex depth of issues around granting a city heritage status.
7: It's interesting, world heritage status is usually given to monuments, not cities. So for monuments, it's a terribly important thing. How important is for cities, I think, is a pretty difficult question to answer. UNESCO would say it's fantastically important. You get money, you get visitors, you get visibility. I'm not sure about that, actually. And when we tried to work out its significance for Liverpool to get hard data, it's quite tricky. So it's part of this conundrum of world heritage, UNESCO, cities, and as I may say later, I don't actually think you should be giving world heritage status to cities. Barrier Reef, yeah. Uh, pyramids, yeah. But living, changing, commercial cities, it's a Pretty interesting kind of question. I never believe the arguments about the impact of world heritage status. Liverpool is Liverpool. People come here because it's fantastically interesting. It has the well-known features of Beatles and football and poets and you never know where the story's going. Great architecture, great river, wonderful people. They don't look on a globe and say, has it got a plaque from... UNESCO. They don't do that. They didn't come from the plaque. And the fact we don't any longer have the plaque ain't going to put people off. As a matter of fact, that's the evidence we've got from Dresden. It's the only other big city to lose the status. They say tourist numbers have gone up, not down. So quite frankly, I don't think it has any significant economic impact upon the city I don't think it'll have any significant impact upon tourism and the visitor economy. The significance of the decision, however, is, and this is what we do have to face up to, UNESCO asking about the quality of development we're going to do. And I think that's a very fair question. We've lost UNESCO status, but the question are you going to do quality development in the future that is sympathetic and compatible with all the assets and virtues we've just discussed about liverpool and in particular the fact it's got more grade one listed buildings outside London than any other city all of that i think the unesco challenges are you prepared and ready and able to do good quality work so I think they're wrong to object to development per se, but they were right to ask the question, is what you're gonna do worthy of the city and worthy of the Scousers? And I think that challenge remains even though UNESCO has gone. So I think for me, this is really the big question the city has to ask post Brexit, post UNESCO, post COVID. What kind of place do we really want to build and what does that mean for the buildings, where they are, what they are, and, particularly particular, how they connect? It's placemaking rather than building buildings, for me, is the challenge we still have to face.
0: Michael has a deep connection to the city. As someone who has sat on many boards about city policy and researched urban regeneration, his knowledge is vast. He has written two books about Liverpool, Liverpool on the Brink in 1985 and then Liverpool Beyond the Brink, the remaking of a post-imperial city in 2019. He even sat on the mayor's advisory board on Liverpool's heritage status. So here is what he had to say about whether or not Liverpool deserved to lose it.
7: If you look at the facts of the case it's complicated, World Heritage site in Liverpool had six places. UNESCO said, in five bits, we don't have a problem. Around the museums, around the Albert Dock, around the Georgian quarter, they thought we'd done okay. And actually, we had done okay. We've, in fact, invested three quarters of a billion in heritage in the past 10 years. The number of derelict buildings of listed status has gone down from 13% to 3%. On the evidence of what we've done thus far, we did not deserve to lose it. The particular argument was about what we would do in the near north docks, from Pierhead through Princess up to Bramley Moor Dock. And frankly, for UNESCO to say to build a football stadium in Bramley Moor was a piece of cultural vandalism shows how out of touch they are with a city which since 1890 has been a leading city in terms of sport. Culture for UNESCO is about buildings and how high they are. That is nonsense. Culture is about the place, the people, the values, the activities. And football is simply one essential part, not the only part, but a crucial part of this city's culture and history and brand and reputation. And to say to build a quality building which respects in heritage and actual saber means we should lose the state it is frankly a joke and not in very good taste.
0: Now, I'm not a big football fan and I've only lived in Liverpool for a year. But when I moved here, I was welcomed with open arms. It's a city that has so much going for it in terms of culture and the people. And although on paper it makes sense UNESCO removing the status, bearing in mind all their rules and concerns, the city itself is a living, breathing, evolving thing. To try and put it in a bubble and make sure no one touches it is just irrational. Well, what's done is done. And the question now is, will losing the status even matter? And that is the end of this episode about scandal. I think it's shown that scandal can come in many forms and that it can be ever-changing. What we might see as scandalous today will be completely normal or forgotten tomorrow. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more stories like this you can support National Museums Liverpool by making a donation or becoming a member at liverpoolmuseums.org.uk join and support. Thanks for listening to the National Museums Liverpool podcast. And don't forget to check out the other episodes in this series.